Well, we begin a new series today, and you have the card. I think you got it last week. Uh, we were talking about John's Gospel, and we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, with the prologue to his Gospel, which is powerful and often uh, overlooked. But we won't overlook it. You'll notice the title of the series is <clears throat> That You Might Believe, and that's exactly what John says is his purpose in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, uh, the purpose in writing this is that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and by believing in Him, you might have life. And so beginning in verse 1, chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right side. He has made Him known. It was a damp and chilly morning in Texas. It was a Wednesday, February 2nd, 1949. The man and his wife Valerie had been in uh, Phoenix for the weekend and they were making their way back to Fort Worth about a thousand miles. The day before they had traveled 500 miles, they had 500 miles to go. And so they got up early, they packed their stuff in the car, they went to breakfast and then got on the road. And they headed east on Route 80 toward Fort Worth. When they had gone about 10 miles the fog began to descend on the roadway. It became more icy and, and uh, slippery, and so the man slowed down to about 25 miles an hour. And as they started across this bridge, he noticed what he would later say was four lights that were, bl- that were winking at me. In reality, what he was seeing was a Greyhound bus in his lane, trying to pass a cement truck. He knew the distance wasn't uh, good enough to get that bus past the truck. And so instinctively, he looked to the right and saw a guardrail to the left, the same thing. He saw the cement truck bearing down in that lane. He knew that there was no hope to avoid this accident. So at the last minute, he dove across his wife's body, saving her from certain death. 
He saved himself from certain death too because when that Greyhound bus hit his car at 65 miles an hour, the entire steering column embedded itself in the driver's seat. She had a couple of cuts and bruises. He had a broken pelvis in two places. A broken collarbone. A shattered left ankle. Two punctured lungs. And he was, as he laid in the hospital, producing blood clots that could threaten his life. The doctor said to him, there's little likelihood that you will ever walk. But they didn't know Ben Hogan for who he was. In 15 months after that accident, he was outside Philadelphia at Marion Country Club winning the U.S. Open. A year later, at Oakland Hills in Michigan, he won the U.S. Open again. And three years after that accident, he won what the sports writers called the Triple Crown. He won the U.S. Open, the British Open, and the PGA Championship. Not bad for somebody who they said would never walk. But of all of the things that Ben Hogan is remembered for, the one thing that he's remembered for more than anything else was his ability to strike the ball. He used to say he always tried to hit it on the second groove of the club. He always seemed to be able to hit the ball wherever he wanted it. One time he was standing in a fairway of a course he had never played. It was a par five. He was about 250 miles from, or 250 yards from the green. He was tucked down around to the right, couldn't see it, it was a blind shot. So he said to his caddy, what's my target? His caddy said, the target is about 300 yards from here, that tree in the distance. I want you to aim for that target, and then I want you to fade the ball about 30 yards to the right, and you'll be on the green. Hogan nodded his head and said, which branch? Caddy said, what branch? He said, yeah, I want to know my target. What branch on the tree? So the caddy said, uh, this third branch down on the left from the top. Hogan nodded and said, which leaf? The caddy couldn't believe it. He aimed right for that leaf, and when the ball came to rest, it was two feet from the cup. Now that's called taking dead aim. And that's exactly what Ben Hogan did, better than anyone else. Now there are those who say, why dead? Why, why not just take aim? Why take dead aim? What's that mean, dead aim? It's like, do your level best. What's level mean? It adds nothing. And yet Webster disagrees. Webster says when dead is used as an adjective, it means complete and absolute. Like dead center, dead silence the dead of night. It's more than intensity. It means precision. And that's exactly what Ben Hogan did every time he hit a shot. He took dead aim. Now I want you to know that of all the Gospel writers, they all have different agendas. They all have different perspectives. They're writing to different audiences. There's no Gospel writer who takes dead aim any better than John. I mean, think of it. He's the last one to see the impact of the Gospel. He's the last living Gospel writer. He's had longer to think about Jesus, His life and ministry, than any other Gospel writer. He's had longer to reflect on the benefits that Jesus brings into a life. And that's why more than any other Gospel writer, John takes target dead aim more than anyone else. 
In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I've written that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and have life in His name. And that word life is a word that he's famous for because John uses that word life more than all of the other Gospel writers combined. In fact, he uses it twice as much as their uh, usage. And the reason is because he knows that when Jesus Christ comes in and takes over a life, He makes radical change. It's an incredible transformation. It's a recreation. And that's why John begins his Gospel the way he does, borrowing words from Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. He believes, John does, that the transformation Jesus makes in His life is as stark and as significant as the creation of heaven and earth. Now there are those who suggest that these first 18 verses were written last. In other words, John wrote 20 chapters and then he wrote this executive summary in the beginning. I happen to believe that. Because as you read what he says, you not only read about the incarnation, God becoming a man, you read about four dramatic implications of that incarnation. Teresa of Avila once said, I only wish I could write with both hands so I would not forget one thing while I'm saying another. I don't know if you've ever had that experience as you write, whether you're typing or you're writing with a pen. But I've had it. Where you are so, there's so much you want to say, you're worried that you might forget as you're saying something else. I believe that's exactly what John is dealing with here. Now normally we read this text at Christmas. And it's appropriate that we do, but the problem with that is we miss a lot. Because we're thinking about a babe in a manger, we're thinking about gifts under the tree, when John is showing us so much more. I have a friend who teaches preachers how to preach. He said, after you write your sermon, you need to read it, and you need to ask one question, so what? And if you can't answer so what concisely and succinctly, you ought to rip it up and start over again. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers, and I've heard one more than anyone else, me, and I've heard a lot of sermons where if you ask the question, so what, you'd probably need to rip it. But I'll tell you what, if John were to ask himself this question after, reading, after writing these 18 verses, he would be able to say, it's all right there. Not only is God made man, but because of it, every believer's life, has been transformed. So let's dig in and see what he says. First of all, notice the adoption. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. You know what he's saying? Because God became a man, you, were, you are able to become a child of God. Think of it. Because God became a man, we are able to become children of God. It's exactly what Paul says in the first chapter of Ephesians that Henry read today. Those he predestined, he also adopted. John and Paul are using the same words, the same concept, because they know what adoption meant in Roman society. If you were adopted into a family in Roman society, your old family totally disappeared. You had no past. Any debt you had incurred, was totally forgiven, you were a new person. And you were transferred from the rulership of one father to the rulership of another. 
In fact, a father's rule over his family was so great that a father could see one of his children disobeying or doing something foolish and he could, he could put him to death with no penalty. A father who was poor, who wasn't able to support all of his children, could take one of his children and sell him or her in order that they might live. When Paul talks about adoption and when John talks adoption, he's talking, they're talking the same way. For years, people have said to me, why do you say that only Christians are children of God? I thought all people were children of God. Not according to John. That's according to our culture, which talks about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. But the Bible never talks that way. Remember when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the day and they say, our father's Abraham, and Jesus said, no, he isn't, it's Satan. Paul talks to Christians at Ephesus and he said, you all by nature were children of wrath, but God who's rich in His mercy has made you alive in Christ. You see, according to the Bible, everyone's a creature of God, but not everyone's a child of God. That only happens by adoption. Years ago, a friend of mine was talking with a woman who grew up in an orphanage. In fact, she went there as a baby and she didn't get out until she was 18. She said, I used to lay in bed as a little child dreaming that maybe, maybe, just maybe my parents were alive and they just misplaced me. And then as I got older, my dream changed and I believed that my father was a king and he'd come and make me a princess. And then I recognized none of that was true until I met Jesus. Now I know it's true. I've been adopted. I'm a daughter of God. And Jesus is my elder brother. You see, John knows that. There used to be a bumper sticker that said, God loves you, but don't let it go to your head. John says, God loves you and let it go to your head. Let yourself recognize in your head and your heart what that means. Do you think it changes your life when you really begin to own the fact that you're His? John says to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become a child of God. But John doesn't stop there. He tells us how it happens. Second, notice the election. Verse 13, "...who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that you and I were born again by the Spirit of God and we had nothing to do with it. Years ago, Barb and I were in Orlando, Florida, for a conference on Reformed theology or biblical theology. We were with a couple who were sort of new to the faith and they didn't know a lot about theology. And so after we ate the dessert, I said to them, why don't we talk about election? And the woman said, oh no, not politics. I said, no, politics is involving the vote of many. I'm talking about the vote of one. Let's talk about the election of God. You see, that's what John's talking about. Remember in chapter 3, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, and He says you must be born again? When Jesus spoke, He spoke very clearly, no vagaries, very specific. What Jesus says is, our spiritual life begins with spiritual birth. Our spiritual birth is analogous to our physical birth. And there's nobody in this room that had anything to do with their physical birth. I mean, think of it. When you were born, did you exercise your will? Did you pick your parents? Did you pick your family? 
We have no choice in the matter. Our birth was a function of the will of others. And that's what John is saying about our spiritual birth. All who received the incarnate God, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, not by the flesh, nor by the will of man, not by their choice, but by the will of God. And third, the third implication is revelation. Look at verses 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. In other words, what John is saying is, nobody knows God. The only way we know Him is through Jesus Christ, who is God. One time, Mark Twain was in a Midwestern town. He was scheduled to speak in the evening, but he got there early. And so he went to a barber shop to clean himself up a bit. And he sits in the barber's chair and the barber said, are you new in town? He said, I'm just here for a day and an evening. He said, well, you came on a perfect night because Mark Twain is going to address us tonight. He's giving a lecture. And Twain said, well, that's great. He said, are you going? He said, I'm not sure. He said, what do you mean you're not sure? You, you didn't get a ticket? I mean, it's sold out. I mean, if, if you go there, if you get in, you'll have to stand Twain said, oh, that's just my luck. Every time that guy speaks, i got to stand. Now think about it that night when that night comes and Mark Twain comes out on stage and that barber sees him. I mean, that's, that's revelation. John says, if you trust Jesus, if you believe in Him for who He is as Lord of your life, it's not simply because you are smart, it's not that at all. It's revelation. He's opened your eyes. He's unstopped your ears. He's able. He's come to you and enabled you to see that not only have you been adopted into His family through the election of His Father, but He Himself has revealed Himself to you. At 8.15, there was a man who at age 40 was in the woods in West Virginia and I was with him and a couple of others. And sitting at a little bench, around in a circle, that's when Jesus came to, his, came to him. And that was the first time he trusted Jesus for who he was. Why? Because Jesus came and revealed himself. There's a woman at 9.15. She normally used to sit on the fourth row, right on this side. She'd come to Hebron for about three weeks. She was an agnostic at best. She said, I hated Christians. But right there, she became one. Why? Because Jesus revealed Himself to her. Henry and I had dinner with a guy on Thursday night. He told his story. He said, 20 years ago, I was inebriated. I was driving. I shouldn't have been. I hit a deer. And as soon as I hit this deer, I saw Jesus. And for the last 20 years, he sought to follow Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Henry's down at CMU studying science. Who would think it? Jesus shows up. He reveals himself to Henry. And every one of us who knows Jesus Christ has our own story. And the same thing is true for all of us. There was a time and there was a place when Jesus first revealed himself. And the great thing about Jesus is he doesn't reveal himself once. He does it over and over and over again. 
John knows it. That's why he says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. He who is at the Father's side has made Him known. And then fourth, and finally, the last implication that John mentions here in these 18 verses is a term called subvention. You say, what in the world is that? I'll define it. There's no better word. It means to be rescued as a result of a gift or a grant made on your behalf. Look at verse 16. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The Greek says, For from His fullness, we have all received grace for grace. That's why two years ago, before he died, Brennan Manning wrote a memoir. And he titled it, All is Grace. In other words, I've lived 82 years and I've come to discover the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Everything in our lives is a function of grace. You know why he said it? Because he knew what John said. From his fullness we've all received grace for grace. Now in John's day, as in our day, if you wanted to gain possession of something, you had to make an exchange. We do it all the time. If you want a pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks, it's going to cost you five bucks, my daughter told me. Okay. If you want a, something, you're going to have to purchase it with money or something, some good and service. And what John is saying here is something that isn't said anywhere else in the Bible. What he's saying is our deepest need is for grace. And what is exchanged for that grace is divine grace. Grace for grace. Somebody says it's like John's dipping into the Old Testament wilderness and equating grace with manna. It's new every day. Every day you get a supply. All that you need. Grace upon grace. Grace for grace. It's all grace. All about grace. And the reason he knows that that's what we need is because he knows the law. Remember what he said? The law was given through Moses. You know what the law says to you and me? It says we're in trouble. In 1992, most of you weren't born, I know that. But I'm old and I have privileges. <laughs> in 92, in the Olympics at Barcelona, Spain, there was assembled a basketball team called the Dream Team. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird... Michael Jordan. I mean, it was loaded. And the reason they did it was because the United States had lost a number of basketball championships around the world in, in a couple of uh, seasons. And they said, forget this, we're going to send our best guys. And they sent the dream team over. And I'll never forget the first interview. You may remember it if you're seasoned. Uh, seasoned. Uh, they're sitting at this long dais, this table, and a questioner asked Charles Barkley, Charles, do you know who will be guarding you from the Angolan team? Do you know anything about Angola? <laughs> Barclay lifted his head and said, I don't know nothing about Angola, but Angola's in trouble. They lost by 68 points. Every team that faced them were in trouble. And they're just like the law. The law says, 
I may not know you, but I've got a message for you. You're in trouble. You must follow everything I dictate, the law says, and yet you can't do it. And John knows it. The law says, follow me and live. And John knows that's impossible. So what does God do? He becomes a man. And He says, follow me. Come to me. And I will give you grace for grace, grace upon grace. I'll stack it up. I'll give you a fresh supply every moment of every day. This came home to a friend of mine a number of years ago. He got a letter from a woman who had been in church most of her life, but she had just come to know Jesus in the past couple of years. And so she said to him, you know, I really didn't understand much about the Gospel of grace. I'd been in church for years and I heard people preach and I saw, heard the teaching, but a lot of it was legalism. In other words, God saved you, but you better live in a certain way or else. But I've come to understand grace a little bit. And it came through a babysitting job I did for a friend of mine with her two-year-old son. I go to the house, I watch this little boy for about 15 minutes, I don't divert my eyes from him, and then I happen to look off and I do something for two minutes, I turn around and he's covered with mud from head to toe. And I think to myself, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? She may be home soon. So I rush over, I'm ready to pick him up, and instead of crying, the little boy looks up at me and says, up, up! And so I pick him up like this, and he goes like this. And I've got mud all over me. And it was at that moment, I feel like the Lord spoke to me and said, you know something? I only hug dirty, muddy kids. I can't hug stiff kids who think they're better than they are. You see, she's understanding grace. John knows it too. John knows that God never waits for us to clean ourselves up because we can't. He's in the business of hugging dirty kids like you and me. And John knows it. So think of it. John has written 20 chapters on the life and ministry of Jesus. He's the only Gospel writer who tells us Jesus says of Himself seven different things. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. All these I am statements. And then... He's the only one that gives us seven signs, seven miraculous signs that uphold the veracity of what Jesus has said. And then He ends the 20th chapter, which is our 21st, with the restoration of Peter on the beach by Jesus. And then what's He do? He does what Ben Hogan did. He grabs a writing implement, takes it in His hand, and instead of aiming at a leaf on the tree, he aims at the Lord on the tree. And he writes a summary of all that that God-man did for everyone who believes. What is it? He's adopted you. He's elected you. He's revealed Himself to you. And He's given you the gift of grace for grace every moment of every day. Now that's quite a summary. I mean, that's only 18 verses. We've got like 42 messages to preach. 
And they only get better. John takes dead aim. And by doing so, he implores us to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Think about that. Amen.